and our hearts long for what is yet to be. In the here and now, would you satisfy us in the grace that you've given us through your son? But would you intensify that longing? Would you make us want the joy that is to come at the end of days more and more with every passing day? And as a result, even of what we hear today, would we long for it even more for that day when we'll be standing face to face with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. If you're thinking, what, <laughs> why are we reading a passage in Revelation to learn how to walk according to God's design for marriage? I mean, you read this, this text, and there's a whole lot of stuff in there that you're going, you're going what does that mean? Symbolic, apocalyptic literature where the Apostle John is being given a vision from God of what is yet to come. And, and he talks about this moment when the great prostitute, who is Babylon, who's representative of, of, of all those who oppose God, is finally thrown down, destroyed, defeated. And then in verse 6, this multitude of people gathering together for this feast. Why? Why are we reading this to talk about how we walk according to God's design in marriage? And if you're thinking that, you're probably not the only one in this room thinking that. But here's why. It's because Ephesians 5, through 33, it paints a beautiful picture of, of, of the basis of marriage and the beginning of marriage, where marriage finds its origin. But then so many Married couples get into marriage and they discover that it's really hard. It's really hard. Here's what I'm saying. I could stand up here and give you lots of practical advice about marriage, but if you're not convinced your marriage is going anywhere, you're just not going to apply any of it. It's going to be no use to you if you don't see where your marriage is going. But Revelation 19 verses 1 through 10 is the Bible's answer to where marriage is going. So that's why before we talk about the how of marriage today, we're going to, we're going to remember where marriage came from and then look to where marriage is going. How marriage begins and how it ends according to the Bible. And here's what we're going to find. Here's what we're going to find, that from beginning to end, marriage was intended for joy. From beginning to end, marriage was intended for joy. Marriage is built for joy. If you're married, your marriage was built for your joy. If you're aspiring to be married, that, that future marriage you hoped to, to, to engage in is built for your joy. If you're supporting the, the marriages of the church and you have friends who are married and you're thinking, what, what, what should I expect of, of, of marriages in the church? You should expect that they exude joy. And that matters. 
that matters because it sets your expectation for what's on the other side of all the effort that you're going to be putting into marriage after you leave this service today. And again, if you're not married, you play a role in this. Let, let, let this frame the marriage you'd like to eventually pursue and let this frame the marriage, uh, frame how you support your married friends in this church. This involves everybody. So here's how this sermon is going to go. Three points. Three points. First, a, a good thing intended for your joy. A good thing intended for your joy. Second point. A hard thing complicated by your sin. A hard thing complicated by your sin. Thirdly, a joyful thing worthy of your intentionality. A joyful thing worthy of your intentionality. So let's start with this, this big picture, this, this gospel story. The, f- the first point, a good thing intended for your joy. Our expectations for what the experience of marriage should be like are shaped by looking beyond our earthly marriages to what our earthly marriages represent, which we learned about in Ephesians 5, right? Namely, the story of the marriage between Christ and his church. So let's look at that story, the the beginning, the middle, and the end of that story. The beginning of that story began in Genesis 2. Marriage was in the beginning in creation. God had pronounced that everything he created was good except for one thing. In a perfect world, there was one thing he said was not good, and that was man, and that was that man was alone. And then God from Adam, from the first man, created the first woman. And upon looking at Eve, Adam said, at last, like words of satisfaction and joy, at last, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. And in the next verse, God institutes marriage in a perfect world before it's stained by sin. From the beginning, marriage was a good gift intended for joy. Let's move to the middle of the story. The middle of the story. Marriage, as we learned in Ephesians 5, depicts the joys of salvation. In a world corrupted by people who went astray, by sinful people who rebel against God and earned his judgment and condemnation. And mind you, that's not a certain classification of people who have gone astray. That's all of us. We've all gone astray, like sheep, and gone their own way, away from God. In that kind of a world, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and redeem all those who believe in him through his loving and sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. All who are saved by him become a part of his bride. So close is our union with Christ and in Christ that it is as if we, the church, are his bride and he loves us like his bride. And the bride responds to the love of Christ with love and fidelity. And that is what marriage, human marriage, is modeled off of. It's that relationship. So he's not just a savior. He's the bridegroom of the bride. And Hosea, the book of Hosea, if you haven't read it, oh man, go read Hosea. There's not, there's not a book in the Bible that will make you cry like Hosea. 
Because it's this parable of Hosea, this man that God says, hey, go pursue this woman and marry her. And then that woman goes and, and is unfaithful to him and, and, and goes and, and sleeps in the bed of other men and then comes back like it's nothing. And God says to Hosea, redeem her. Take her back. And in Hosea 2, 19 through 20, using that as a symbol God says to his people, to Israel, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Here's the point. Salvation is nothing but grace and God's goodness and kindness and faithfulness, even and especially when we don't deserve it. Salvation is joyful. And if marriage depicts the saving love of Jesus, the expectation formed for us by the middle of the story is what? It's joy. But the story doesn't end there. The end of the story is right here in Revelation 19 through 22. It's John's retelling of the vision he received from the Lord of the joyful end of all things, the the breathtakingly joyful end of all things. And in this vision of the joyful end of all things, marriage is at the center. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns and he reigns because he has now conquered everything and everyone who opposes him. Let us rejoice. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So once God finally rids all of creation from sin, what happens next? Marriage. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You remember in, in Ephesians 2.10, God created works, good works for you before time. Those works that he works out of you from your salvation, those are the fine linen But more than that, it's the righteousness of Christ that the bride is clothed with as as the bride is presented to Christ at the end of all things. Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is an actual, literal celebration that will take place that if you are in Christ today, You're going to be at that. And it will be joy like your present human existence cannot comprehend. Celebration that will take place when all whom Christ has redeemed, his bride will finally forever be united in the presence of her bridegroom. This moment is what theologians have called 
the consummation. And, and in human marriages, consummation is what happens on the wedding night between the new husband and wife. And we shouldn't blush at this. We shouldn't blush at this. It's, it's, it's the sinful minds of sinful humanity that have perverted God's good gift of sex. God's original design is beautiful and reflects his love and joy. So on a wedding night, the union that, that, that was symbolically, legally, and covenantally pronounced at the ceremony, it becomes real for the rest of their lives. The relationship that they're dating and engagement relationship pointed forward to the, the experience of that relationship that they've been longing, longing for finally begins in its complete fullness. In the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's the moment when the relationship with Christ that all of us have been longing for, all of this has been pointing forward to, finally begins in its complete fullness. All of the redeemed, not just united to him and in him spiritually, but in his presence, in the presence of Jesus. Scholar P.S. Minier says that this passage brings the picture, the story, to a climax by foreseeing the wedding banquet when at last, after all the suffering and all the necessary preparation, the bride and groom are finally united. (laughs) And the festivities begin. I don't know about you, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day. And that joy just keeps going on forever. We've already read Revelation 21 twice this morning. We will live in his presence in perfect blissful existence where there is no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying, no more sin or its effects in a joy that is currently incomprehensible to us. Think of marriage this way. Think of human marriage this way. Your husband or your wife is your closest traveling companion on the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. (laughs) From one perspective, that's what it is. Your spouse is your closest traveling companion on your way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's a joyful road to walk because you know where you're going. My friend, listen, here's our concern as, as pastors. Okay. Our concern as a pastoral team is that there would be some who would be tempted to settle in their marriages for less than joy. To become cynical about marriage. To, to harbor resentment or bitterness toward their spouse and think this is just how it is. This is how it's going to be. Our marriage is on the rocks and it's just going to stay on the rocks for good. Yeah, maybe we're not thinking about actually getting divorced. We know that's not possible or right before the Lord. We don't want to do that, but it's just not going to get any better than this. That's a lie from Satan. Talking about spiritual warfare that we've been talking about. That is a lie from Satan. Marriage is intended for your joy. But if that's you, know that we're with you. 
and God is with you, and we want you to stick with us. Because we know that you may right now be thinking, okay, what you just said sounds great, but it sounds like joy is reserved for the wedding night and for this big theological category. But God doesn't intend for me to experience joy now. Let me ask you this. Is joy in marriage reserved for honeymoons and the theological realm? No. No, it's not. And if you're going, okay, show me. I say, I, I will. Look at the Bible. The, I, and, and I had to restrict myself to a short list of verses because the list was getting incredibly long, so I took off about three-quarters of them. But go back to Ecclesiastes. If you want to find joy in marriage, just read Ecclesiastes or read A Song of Solomon. But Ecclesiastes po- points, it paints a picture of all the potential joys of life. And one of the highest joys of life that you can find is Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoying life with the wife or the husband whom you love. That's one joy that the, that the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't say that's just chasing after the wind. He says, no, that is a real joy. Isaiah 62.5, and as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And that can be taken the other way too. She who finds a husband finds a good thing. It's not that only wives are good things to find. <laughs> Song of Solomon 1.4, boy oh boy. The bridegroom says of his bride, his beloved, I will exult and rejoice <laughs> Song of Solomon is just replete with that kind of language. Uh, e- even language like, your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Men, if you're not writing poems like this to your wife, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Hebrews 13:4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Not let marriage be this ball and chain that you got to get through and everybody knows it. No. So, why is it so hard? Second point. A difficult thing complicated by your sin. A difficult thing complicated by your sin. And let me just say this. It's going to get a little bit harder first. Just a preface. Because author Dave Harvey, he says in his fantastic book, When Sinners Say I Do, which I can't recommend to you more highly, it's like the book that once you get married, that's the book you should read. There are other great books for premarital, for preparation for marriage, but When Sinners Say I Do, fabulous book. He says in that book, guys, the radiant woman on whose finger you slipped that wedding ring Ladies, the man who offered you a vow of perfect faithfulness and lifelong sacrifice? Sinner. A major point of the book, (laughs) and and, and he's not being tongue-in-cheek, but a major point of the book, you are one of the top two problems in your marriage. And here's what we typically do during relationally 
difficult periods of, of, of marriage. We build a case for why I'm the number two problem and he or she's the number one problem. But listen, if all sin is destructive, if all sin is, is, is a denial of the truth of God, if all sin is, is rebellion against God's way of, of doing things, and if you're both sinners, then you're co-number one problems. C.J. Mahaney rightly points out that dealing with the sin problem is the key to a thriving marriage. And since you can't deal with your spouse's sin, since, since you can't deal with the sin problem before God for your spouse, and you can't make your spouse do that, but you can deal with your sin problem by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then from where you're sitting, if dealing with the sin problem is the key to a thriving marriage, then you are the biggest problem in your marriage. Don't you just hear that? And it just sounds repulsive, doesn't it? I mean, I, even writing this, I, I go, No. But if there's anything that should repulse us, it's the sin that lies latent in our heart, especially that sin that we coddle and we justify and we excuse. Thomas Watson once said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And he wasn't talking about the sin, sin of your spouse. What he meant was that until we truly understand the problem, we won't savor the solution. And here's why so many marriages struggle to find the sweetness of Christ. It's because their marriage is made up of two people who are convinced the other person is the biggest problem. That is, that is the core reason why most challenges in marriage exist. It's because of a conviction that I'm not the problem. He is. I'm not the problem. She is. And then the other person is saying, I'm not the problem. He is. I'm not the problem. She is. It's not a very great recipe for reconciliation or unity or progress. But if, if confident in your standing in Christ, your identity in him, if you can have the humility to say, from where I'm sitting, I'm the biggest problem in my marriage, then the biggest need in your marriage is for you to constantly apply the gospel to your role in your marriage. To repent of sin, to seek forgiveness from Christ, to seek the, the power of by his grace of his spirit to walk faithfully in contrast to the way you were walking. And my friends, the solution, it works. It's the only solution that does, that does work. And guess what? If both parties are doing that as a matter of first priority, guess what it leads to? Joy. It leads to joy. 
So now let's finish on some hows. We've established where marriage is going and what the problem is. If marriage is designed for joy, what the problem is, now let's talk about how we can walk some of these things out. Third point, a joyful thing worthy of your intentionality. A joyful thing worthy of your intentionality. It's not just killing sin. That, that's a miserable way to go through your marriage. It's not just, just killing sin. It's turn, turning the corner, delighting in Christ, and then actively delighting in and cherishing your spouse. Like having fun in your marriage and enjoying the wife who, whom God has given to you, husbands, wives, enjoying the husband that God has given to you. Now, as we were designing this, this sermon, we thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great to just do sort of like a crash course in premarital counseling? And then we realized well, we're biting off a little more than we can chew. So we've already, most premarital counseling sessions that, that we'll do have six main topics. One is the, the design and origin of marriage. We've already gone through that in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Second is the roles in marriage. We've already gone through that in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Then we have communication, conflict resolution, finances, and romance. So you got really four more topics, and because... This was just too much to chew. I, we took finances out of there. So we're going to talk about communication, conflict resolution, and romance. It'll be a great start. And let me just say this. This is off, off the cuff, but I, I think Jeff and Jason would agree with, with me. If you listen to this and, and you are married or you're thinking about getting married, and you're going, man, I'd like to dive deeper into these and talk with a pastor about any of these topics, maybe all of these topics, we'd love to engage in, in formal, just, just conversations about these things with you, to help you walk through what these might look like in your marriage, because we're just gonna scratch the surface today, okay? So here we go, 15-minute crash course. <laughs> oh boy, Lord help me. First one, communication. Let me ask you this, if you're married, what is the goal of your communication with your spouse? It, it, you ever think about that? It's often said that, that great communication is a key to a healthy marriage. Whether or not you agree with that, it is true that good communication is important, but what is good communication? How do you define what good communication is? Is it just avoiding conflict? Is it just avoiding the hard conversations? Is it just making sure that things are are nice and happy on the surface so long as we don't go any deeper than that and, and drum up that old skeleton that always causes a fight among us? What is good, good communication and what's it aimed at? Here's a great place to start. Remember that before your husband and wife, you are brother and sister in Christ. And the priority of our communication in the family of God as brothers and sisters in Christ is to experience fellowship which, as J.I. Packer uh, defines, is a seeking by Christian people to know and enjoy God better by sharing with each other what individually they have learned and enjoyed of him already. I'll say that again. A seeking by Christian people to know 
and enjoy God better by sharing with each other what individually they've learned and enjoyed of him already. In other words, in marriage, the motive of your communication should have a Godward direction for the sake of the benefit of the other. It's effectively what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4.29, if you remember that passage, when he said, let your words give grace to those who hear. Let your words give grace to those who hear. Husbands, wives, do your words give grace to each other? It's a great place to start. How often are you intentionally encouraging your spouse? pointing out the good things that you see in them, the evidence of God at work in them. How often are you praying together? How often are you praying for your spouse? How often are you telling your spouse that you love them just because? By sending them a text, by calling them or even leaving them a voicemail. Just a sideways glance, sitting there on, the, on a chair, looking at them and just saying, hey, love you. Do you know what your spouse's personal devotion life is like right now? Do you know what they're reading in God's word? Are they in the word? And this gets into Peter's instruction to husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7, to, to live with your wives in an understanding way. This, this is a communication directive from Peter. And it's, it's been said by some that this could be rephrased as, husbands, be constant learners of your wife. She's not the same woman that she was when you married her years ago. Even, even six months ago. Or even three months ago. However interests and preferences changed over time, have you asked her that? Have you really sought to know that? And, and wives, you're, this, is a, this is helpful for you as well, to, to be learners of your husband. What, what are her hopes and dreams and fears, guys? Do you know those? Could you answer that? What brings her joy? At this season of life right now, what brings her joy? And caveat, let me say this. Remember, your sin is the only one that you can deal with. So resist hearing any of this with a, well, I hope he's listening. I hope she's listening to what he's saying right now because he needs to start doing this. That's the wrong way to listen to this. You, your heart and your your motives and your attitude and your behavior and your words, those are the only ones that you can change, the ones that belong to you as you engage with God on that level. And, and, and let me just say this last thing on communication. You, you can and should gently confront sin in the other. So it's not saying like, hey, if my wife is walking in sin, I hope God does something about that. Now, you can and should gently confront sin with the goal, with the goal of them experiencing God's grace for their sin. But you can't change them. Actually changing them, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So if it's the work of the Holy Spirit, go back to the question. Again, are you praying for your spouse? Okay, that's communication. Four. Five minutes on communication. Again, if you want to talk more about this, Jeff, Jason, and I, we'd love to 
sit down with you. Our, our wives would love to sit down with you as well. Second one, conflict resolution. So when communication goes awry. And bad news, let's just say this. You will experience conflict. Sometimes it's over Reese's peanut butter cups. That was our first marital conflict on our honeymoon. We got in a <laughs> knockdown, drag out fight over Reese's peanut butter cups. Sometimes it's over something that's actually more serious. But even the most apparently perfect couples will experience relational conflict. And here's what matters. Here's what matters. Every single conflict can either be redemptive or destructive. And you have a choice. And that choice depends on whether you will choose to let Christ stand in the middle of your conflict. Here's what I mean. If it's about proving who's right, if it's about making sure the other person feels badly enough about what you think they've done, if, if it's about you just getting what you want because you came into this wanting something and they're just being stubborn and we need to get there, it will be destructive. E- either, either piece by piece like a dismantling Jenga tower or ex- explosively destructive. Why? Because none of those aims actually deal with your sin. None of them. But the Bible says in James 4.1, what causes, ask the question, it says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? <laughs> James says, isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? That is the simplest, most accurate description on earth of every marital fight there ever was. And if you think, no, I can think of one that doesn't fall in that category, I think I can prove you wrong. Conflict is about our desires that we hold in our hearts that are butting up against one another. Car crashes of desires turn into marital conflicts. Two people who desire different things and those desires clash. Two sinners' desires crashing and making a mess. That's a marital conflict. Here's the simplest piece of advice for your marital conflict. Make the glory of Jesus your greatest desire. If conflicts result from bent desires, make the glory of Jesus your greatest desire. Because that's never a bent desire. Actually do it. Think these words. Next time you're in a disagreement or an argument, think these words. Think, Lord, help me to desire the glory of your son more than anything else right now. Actually say those words. But those words will be meaningless unless you actually believe that the gospel works. Dave Harvey said, what we believe about God determines the quality of our marriage. If you don't really believe the gospel is going to redeem what you see that's broken in your marriage, you're not going to actually move to apply that as the solution. What you believe about who God is and what he's done through his son and what that means for your marriage, if you don't believe that, then you're not going to apply the solution. Does the gospel really work? Is it really necessary? Can God really change us? Your functional answers to those questions will have a big impact on your marriage. And and if your answer is no, again, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to to launch off of this sermon and have one-on-one conversations or two-on-two conversations. 
but what happens if Jesus becomes each of your greatest desires? <laughs> if both people are both saying, Lord, help me to desire the glory of Jesus more than anything else right now, what happens then? Well, you race each other to the cross. That's what happens. Your own sin and your own sinful desires become more bitter to you than your spouse's. You remember that you're a forgiven sinner and that forgiven sinners forgive sin. What happens is that the Lord humbles you and you repent regardless of what's going on in the other person. What happens is that you remember that you love your spouse and that you want their good and not their tearing down or their discouragement. What happens is that you reconcile. And the restorative power of the gospel is pictured in your marriage. Friends, this stuff works. Huge surprise. Out of the ashes of a mess of a car crash of bad desires comes joy. We will often say conflicts in our marriage are not a bad thing. They can become destructive if we let them. But they can also be some of the greatest sources of our building up in Christ together and our unity with one another. I can genuinely say I I love my wife more because of the conflicts that we've worked through in our marriage. I hope she can say the same for me. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Let's go to the last subject. Romance. Romance. Because you're not just friends. You, You are one flesh. But a wise friend and counselor named Gary Ricucci once told me, I'll never forget this, and it forever changed the way that I look at at my wife. He said, you have the profound honor of being able to love your wife like nobody on earth can or is even allowed to. What a gift. But if you withhold that love from her, that means you're withholding a love that no other human on earth is able to give to her. What a tragedy. Husbands, may, may, may I give you, give us some reminders. Your wife is not your business partner in the operation of your home. Your wife is not your roommate. Your wife is not your servant who lives to bolster your self-esteem. Your wife is your bride. Your wife is your bride. As much as she was on that day that you stood before the altar together, she remains as precious, if not more precious to you, objectively, in reality, as on that day. You and I just tend to forget it. Familiarity breeds contempt, and our eyes are drawn away from from who she really is in our lives. And wives, your eyes are drawn away from who your husband really is in your lives to other things, and we need to be reoriented. But when we lose sight of that, how do we get back to the place of seeing our wives and our wives' husbands for who they really are? By repenting of our neglect or our laziness or whatever it is, not pretending to know what's at the heart of that for you, and looking to Christ 
to model that for us again. That's why we have Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. We remember, husbands, that Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. He loved his bride as his own body. And that never changes. It's not like he, he, he rose from the grave after, after laying down his life for his bride and then said, okay, now it's just business as usual. Carry on. No. That's why you're a Christian, because you know that today he loves you and his love cannot be taken away from you by height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. You know it. Romans 8. Look to Christ. To reorient, your, reorient yourself to see your spouse for who they are. So guys, here's the thing. Take initiative. If she's your bride, if she is your cherished treasure, take initiative in demonstrating to your wife how precious she is to you. Actively do that. Cherish her. Schedule a, a regular date night, however that looks. However that looks in Southern California, in dual-income households, in one-and-a-half-income households, with however many kids you have, whatever that looks like, actively date your wife. Set aside time for you and her to be alone together, to have meaningful conversation that goes below the surface of how it was the day. Bring her flowers home from work just because. Surprise and delight your wife. in ways that require your creativity. <laughs> I'm not a very creative person. i got to work for these sorts of things. They don't come naturally to me. And when I do them, it takes me a whole lot more work than whatever I'm doing at work. It actually takes some conscious time thought. But it's worthwhile time. Open her door for her. Take her jacket for her. It's not about whether or not chivalry is dead. Take moments to show her that she's top of mind for you. That her needs, even in the smallest moments, are important to you. Learn her favorite places to eat, the places she wants to travel. Learn what makes her feel rested and relaxed and seek to help her find ways to enjoy that. Offer to clean up around the house in ways that may be unexpected. For me, I am terrible at picking up my clothes off the floor. I just... Carries on through through high school and college, and I even had a period where we had a chair in the corner of the room, and I called it my chair drobe. I don't have a wardrobe; I just have a chair drobe, and I threw my clothes on the chair. And Kelsey just patiently endures me. Every once in a while, I just think, man, I think this would really serve her. It's actually affectionate, romantic to her for me to pick up my clothes and to tell and to show her through my actions, hey. I know this drives you nuts. This is important to me. Hold her hand. You're out in public. Grab her hand. Give her a back massage just because. Speak well of her in public. Seek to elevate others' perception of her. If she really is this treasure, this, this person that you have vowed to spend the rest of your life with, Oh, gosh, isn't it your joy to build her up in front of others? Wives, same goes for you. Build your husbands up. Make your anniversary a big deal. Celebrate your love. Take, take 
opportunities to celebrate your love. Don't just go through the, well, I mean, we got married. I, t- I told you once that I love you on the, on the altar, and it still stands true today. No. Celebrate. Cultivate your love, your romance, and your marriage. Wives also treasure your husbands and respond to their romantic gestures. Even if those romantic gestures feel totally contrived. And you're like, oh man, he's doing this because he heard it in a sermon on Sunday. (laughs) So what? He's making an effort. And you know what? If you respond to him well in that, he might want to do it again. And lo and behold, after six months, there's an actual pattern developing here. And listen, when husbands, when your wife doesn't Measure up to your expectations in terms of romance. Wives, when your husbands don't measure up, give them grace. Marriage is by definition not a merit-based system. It is a grace-based system. Here's the thing. This is the last thing I'm going to say. We're talking about romance, but I haven't yet mentioned what happens in the bedroom. Not that it's not important, but any spouse makes a mistake when we, when we hear romance and fast forward to thinking about that. Romance is, is, an, is an entire relationship characteristic where you're seeking to touch one another's minds and hearts. And then that's the culmination. Where's all this going? Marriage is designed for your joy from beginning to end. And one day at the end of all things, at the beginning of the rest of eternity, we will experience joy like never before. That's where we're headed.